Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to another edition of Around the Coin, the premier podcast for all things banking, payments, and fintech. Here are your hosts, Mike Townsend, Brian Romley, and Faisal Khan. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Around the Coin. Today, we are more prepared than ever to have a fantastic show. We have Brian and Faisal and myself on the line. How is everyone doing, Brian? What is new with you, man? I'm doing great. Uh, it's wonderful to be here. How are you doing? Oh, life is good. Life is good. We've got a lot of big news, and then we're going to be leaning the conversation around block, block, uh, blockchain. Uh, Faisal gave a 700-slide presentation, and Faisal is now has to be one of the top experts in the world when it comes to blockchain, I think, especially Absolutely. with the, the freshness of it all in your mind. So we want to pull that out during this conversation, the best and brightest of what Faisal has going. Faisal, man, tell me about your, uh, your travels. You're working on some awesome projects. Good morning to you both. And it's not 700, it's 270. Ah, slight exaggeration. <laughs> well, yeah, slight exaggeration. So 270 slide, you know, but yeah, blockchain is something that's extremely interesting. It was a good buzzword before, but now it's turning more towards business and I've been gravitating for that, uh, gravitating towards it. Uh, got to travel to the Middle East, went to Dubai, Abu Dhabi and Doha, or Doha and Qatar. And, you know, scored a few clients, explained a few concepts. So let's see how it goes. But uh, so what's up with you guys, Mike and Brian? What's up on your end? Well, I'll tell you, it's been a busy couple of days here, uh, primarily Friday. I had um, awoken to my colleagues in the East Coast region of the country with uh, a flapping Internet going up and down. We later found out it was a DNS attack uh, and it was a DNS attack via Internet of Things, uh, you know, IP-connected devices, something I've always been concerned about. I actually wrote a piece, I've got to dig it up on Core, I think it was 2010, that as we start bringing on more systems on the Internet, the security of those systems become preeminently important. Um, and these uh, were IP cameras, right? Not just cameras. Uh, Mostly. Yeah, I mean, basically, it was traced to one uh, factory in China, which allowed for a hardware-encoded um, backdoor passwords, apparently. And uh, that allowed individuals to not only take control of those devices or those, they're, they're really just microcontrollers that connect to anything. It could be a, a lot of front door locks. I have friends that had a number of different door locks that they couldn't get into their home uh, because their door was literally locked. They had to use all sorts of bypass 
I heard uh, stories, I have not been confirmed, in Boston, people were using sledgehammers to get into their homes because the doors wouldn't open. Um, there are a number of medical devices, but more apropos to stuff that I do is a lot of tablet-based POS systems were offline. So people couldn't get their morning coffee, um, you know, different boutiques weren't open. And uh, of course, online transactions as big as Amazon, Amazon probably lost uh, quite a few million dollars. I think it's a few million dollars a minute uh, with Amazon. So it was off pretty much a couple of hours. So you can kind of extrapolate. So Amazon was also down? Amazon was down for some people. Yeah, because the way DNS propagates and the way that they did this attack, some people were using their fundamental primary DNS downstream to DYN. And even though Amazon's own DNF servers may or may not have been implicated, the user trying to get to Amazon may have been using that system. So that's the problem with DNS. You have the user side trying to get out, and then you have the DNS, uh, you know, home storage for a particular uh, business like uh, Twitter. Twitter was unreachable for a lot of people. So the, the uh, servers yeah, were up. I, wanna, I want to stress that Twitter was available on the mobile, but the website version was just, you know, just wouldn't well, load. It was according to where you were located. What was the default DNS server, uh, you know, consumer side or user side server um, to try to make that, you know, conversion for to IP address? And the issue of the vulnerabilities are quite large, but the solution to fix it might be even more onerous. Whenever there's a problem, there's offers to regulate and change things. And sometimes those offers to regulate and change things could be you know, fundamentally uh, worrisome. Uh, I, well, maybe we'll get into that later or sometime, but the, the primary problem is, you know, getting down to commerce and people listen to our show a lot into uh, transactions. Um, the fact that a cloud-based POS system could be taken out by something as tangentially related as a remote DNS hack to, uh, you know, a DNS server that may or may not be fundamentally connected to the destination that that cloud POS system was uh, going to reach is concerning. And it's something I've identified in the dawn of this uh, era. I said, you know, these things have to be redundant and fault tolerant, just like uh, medical machines. I, I used to get slagged on on, on, on core because I would use medical machines as an example of the heart of a business, right? If your POS system is strung by by a couple of web connections and some apps, and even though they might be built great, you have to really think about what if this goes wrong? What happens if the internet's down? How do we handle that? And um, I'm not going to name exact names because I don't think it's fair at this point. Uh, I think um, after there's a postmortem, and weeks go by, we'll probably know just how dumb some of these uh, systems were. Uh, I already know at least two, maybe four, uh, when we get down to it, and the way they program their systems. Now, we have incredibly brilliant engineers, but my, my, my problem with a lot of these companies have always been, think and live in the real world. Uh, this merchant, you know, internet connectivity for small merchants is typically DSL at this point for a vast majority. And those things flap up and down all the time. And how are you going to deal with that? How do you cash it? How do you notify the merchant that the system is down? Here's the problem. Most of the merchants that I heard from didn't know their system was down. The transactions just took forever. 
I mean, literally one transaction a merchant was waiting for for 45 minutes before he just said, you know, uh, he let the person go, but he just let the transaction go. He's not getting his money. Brian, any any idea how many um, how many point of sale systems went down? I didn't even think about that. I was only thinking web. Yeah, um, it's hard to say. Um, I know, uh, again, I know of two two companies who uh, are quite popular with their cloud-based POS tablet-based system. And the fact that they're not talking about it is irksome to me. The fact that they're just, you know, you know, like political hacks just sitting there with a smile, nothing happened. That's sort of worrisome. I think it's important to have clarity and transparency. And I'm not going to be the guy to do that. It's not my job to be uh, that guy. But I'm just saying, if you hear my voice, you folks should come out cleanly. What went? Ha- what happened? What you're going to do in the future, and how you might make some of these merchants whole? Because some of them have lost thousands of dollars of transactions. That you know, you got a you got a customer in front of you, right? And there's a line building, and that transaction is not consummating. It's not completing. Um, that merchant is going to make a judgment call. He's not going to say, give me cash. Sometimes he's going to say, you know, just go on. It's not clearing, but you're good for it. Don't worry. And then, of course, it's found out later that maybe the, the transaction won't go through uh, or something else must, happens. Yeah, I mean, they must have redundant systems in place, I'd imagine. Well, some of them have this capability of, quote unquote, going offline. All right. That sounds great. The problem is it was never tested in the real world. It's like, well, if you, it's, it's binary. Well, if you don't have an internet connection, we can back it up. And, you know, when you connect again, it'll work. Well, that sounds great. But try it when the internet connection is coming up and down rapidly, which is what happens in a DNS attack like this. And, and I, listen, I'm not a computer scientist graduate. I'm not an engineer. I know this stuff just being out in the real world. These folks should know this stuff by virtue of how, how many zeros they have, uh, you know, on their, uh, on their yearly income and how many initials they have after their last name. Right. So my, my view is, you know, they, they pretty much laughed at me and a, quite a number of folks about redundancy and fault tolerance. They said, Oh, you know, iPads and Android tablets are fine. You know, you can run the whole thing. And my argument was, yeah, how come you don't see him behind you at an operating room? And how come you don't see it on a heart lung machine? Oh, that's just because they're not modernizing. No, that's because you actually are looking at four, sometimes five redundant systems in one box. And, uh, and, and they're designed to only do one thing and they, they're not connected to the ethernet for primarily the, the reason and you don't want this stuff to happen, right? So, you know, you guys know I'm a nerd. I'm a technologist. But the problem is when you really understand, and Faisal knows this, and I'm sure you know this, Mike, the core technologies that run TCIP and the internet are, are always going to be highly vulnerable. Uh, the only reason mm-hmm. why Yeah, they, I mean, a lot of it is just old technology. I do have weird. to ask, though, uh, Brian, what, what are your, in one word or yeah. one, one answer, what, who, do you think, who, do you think, who do you think did it? Who, 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 I mean, I haven't heard oh. anything out there. Oh, yeah. I, I think it's uh, associated with uh, Wikilinks, uh, and I think they've taken credit. What they're essentially saying is you want to silence the Julian Assange and Wikilinks, we're going to silence the whole internet. Now, I, I again, I, I'm not taking a position on this whatsoever, but what I am saying is that we are now living in a world where mainstream communication systems, mainstream uh, accepted media – um, is changing, you know, and we're looking at this with Time, uh, Time Warner and AT&T. We're, we're looking at the last era of centralized mainstream media. And we're also looking at 
this new form of media, which according to what side of the world you're on at any particular moment is either horrifying or or liberating a really good really. thing. Yeah, yeah. right. Faisal, uh, what do you what are your thoughts there? Do you do you think do you have any idea who if you had to wage a guess? No, uh, but you know, I I did read a lot that it is perhaps state sponsored if that's the right word to use because they feel that an individual could probably not do this. It, it probably requires a much coordinated effort and so forth. But what bothers me is if IP cameras were used and they are seeing it, I mean, Atlas Arbor Networks, you know, they said yeah. that IP, a lot of IP cameras were used, is that they said even if that's done and over with today, the IP cameras are still exposed and there are millions of them. You, you can't know? change so, the passwords. They're hard-coded. Uh, you can't the change system. the passwords and the owners are certainly not going to take them offline and upgrade the, you know, the bios or work the software on them and so forth and you know so that's a huge issue so that those vulnerable cameras will remain and will be exploited in the days to come again and again and again i just hope it's not the um you know the calm before the storm or the the, the warm-up lap it's just scary to see what you know i makes I, us feel I, very vulnerable I, I, I think it is uh unfortunately and you know it's interesting when we call something state sponsored or not. I, I I think that we as humans like to label things as much as we possibly can to sort of shorthand the whole thing, so we don't have to think about it a lot. I think we're entering an era where I think it's going to be important to understand what exactly is a state, what exactly is sponsorship, what exactly are the motives. And it's no longer cut and dry and simple. It's no longer good versus bad in, in the traditional sense. It's no longer one country versus another country in a traditional sense. And, you know, I, again, I, it seems pretty clearly that it's at least tangentially related to Wikilinks. And again, in America, we, we, we're, we're now to believe that there's only one state sponsor behind that. The, the, the question is, why were these processors, which were made in China, uh, and and their BIOS and their uh, and their ROMs, why were they made with a backdoor? Who motivated that? So when we start pointing fingers, we could say, okay, well that was China, or or no, it's got to be Russia, or no, it has to be India. It's got to be, you know, we could start pointing fingers all over the place. The thing is, if in fact somebody knew in advance that there was a backdoor into the these uh, devices, and by the way. Cars have these things. You got to remember, self-driving cars. We're entering an era where we're yeah, that's championing self-driving cars. It's certainly, and you know, hopefully we have, we have a lot, a lot of defenses in place. I do want to move on to a really exciting part Faisal sent out ahead of time, which was kind of uh, challenging us to each present a book that has been impactful, meaningful, that would add to the conversation. Faisal, I'll let you kind of kick off this so, section. Thank you. So on because the topic for today is blockchain, I actually want to recommend two books. The one that is a very easy and interesting read is a book called Blockchain Revolution. Uh, it's called How the Technology Behind Bitcoin is Changing Money, Business, and the World. It's by the best-selling author of Wikinomics called Don Tapscott and his son Alex Tapscott. So that's a uh, one. And the other one I want to uh, bring out is a book called The Age of Cryptocurrency. It's written by Paul Vigna and Michael Casey. Uh, two books I think are very interesting to read in these days where blockchain is supposedly going to be bigger than perhaps everything we have ever known. Uh, they are, in fact, in the book, um, 
by Don Tapscott, he actually says that, you know, the two most, uh, he quotes economists, economists says that the two most important discoveries or, you know, inventions, if you will, were the joint stock company and double entry accounting, you know, uh, double entry accounting. And he says the third big thing that economists sees is the blockchain. So I think, uh, you know, it, it's very important that we start studying it and start taking it seriously. It is not just about Bitcoin and so forth. It's, it is going to change the world, what decentralized open public ledgers will do. Um, so two good books to read. Yeah, I'm excited around that. I, I can't wait to dive in. Um, I want to mention my book, which is unrelated to blockchain, but uh, I think it's fantastic. And I just just read it recently. It's called Never Split the Difference by Chris, Chris Voss. And Chris Voss was in charge of the negotiation department at the FBI for a number of years and largely regarded as one of the best negotiators in the world, helped uh, negotiate uh, many, many uh, hostage situations, terrorist situations. And he writes about specifically um, the psychology and neurolinguistic programming that goes into the phrasing of words that get people to associate with different ideas and get them to do what you want. And uh, the book's called Never Split the Difference. Highly recommend it. Uh, Brian, what was your, <clears throat> what was your, did you have one uh, top of mind? Uh, I got a couple. I you think, would recommend uh, the library if you could. Yeah, I mean, it's really hard to pull something out. So I, I just pulled out stuff that I, uh, one is definitely re related, and that is uh, Dave Birch's Identity is the New Money. I mean, the guy was uh, materially uh, involved in helping form the, the foundations of M-Pesa in Africa, at least his uh, his essential think tank uh, was charged with that. He wrote this in uh, 2014, and uh, it 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 already is coming true to a lot of levels. So I definitely recommend that. Dave Birch, Identity is New Money. Um, anything by Brett King, you know, I'll throw that out there. And a, a book I've picked up again, which I reread from time to time, is Carl Sagan's Bracca's uh, Brain. And it talks about the Bracca area of the human brain. And uh, I, I keep going back to this and about 35 other books written to understand the hemispheres within the brain and, and our learning and our the way we cognize things. I think it's very important, especially at this moment in time. Uh, I, I noticed around me uh, people are agitated and confused and they don't know how the future is going to go. And a lot of this has to do with our ability to discern the reality versus what's being, you know, presented as reality. Mm. Uh, that's the emotions of people attached to certain positions, which they feel they, they must cement themselves into the ground with. And uh, the Broca area of the brain, it was a monumental uh, point in the development of humans. And it allowed us to be able to that in a corpus callosum, which is the actual, the area that connects uh, both the right and left hemisphere. And, you know, this all sounds esoteric, but I think it's so important for us to understand us. We don't really, you know, we have this inner reflection sometimes, which is more like, what am I here for? What am I doing? I think if you look at it from a mechanical standpoint, you understand, and, and we've done this when, uh, when we talk to Tor nor standards to some level, but on another level, we're in a constant struggle between our in intuition and our, our reason-based mind. And, we're in a world right now where the reason-based mind is all that matters, right? It, it's, it, of course, that's the fact. And Carl Sagan brilliantly wrote that if we didn't understand 
that we need the intuition part of our brain just as importantly. Now, this is the this is the guy whose picture shows up when you ask what a scientist should be. I mean, he is the master debunker of crazy theories, etc., right? But he writes a book which essentially says all of human development moves forward because the people that have mastered the corpus callosum, the connection between the intuitive side of the brain and a fact-finding side of the brain, they found a way to marshal those energies and synergistically move forward. So that's my that's one of the reasons I'm looking at it right now. It also helps helps me be creative. It helps me be able to take a step out and say, you know, debunkers and experts, I really don't care what you have to say at this moment. You're just you're just reiterating what your paradigm is right at this moment. And that's great, but the reality is that's not how society and humans move forward. They don't constantly always, reiterate the facts. You know? it, it's always so fascinating to just be reminded of how little we actually know and the reminders that indicate how little we know. I Absolutely. do want to jump into blockchain. I, I know this is going to be the highlight of the show. Yes. Um, Fessel, do you want to kick it off with kind of a brief, not necessarily brief, but a summary of blockchain for those who um, aren't so familiar with it, something I could sense to my mom and she would understand, and then we can dive deep. So the first thing I want to you know, say it is that many people keep confusing blockchain to Bitcoin. Bitcoin is not blockchain and blockchain is not the Bitcoin. They're two separate things. Think of blockchain more as the Rails, the TCP IP, and Bitcoin would be a web app. So blockchain, in very simple terms, is an open, public, uh, decentralized, distributed ledger. There is no central authority that maintains this ledger. A ledger can be thought of no different as a database. It has three very important novelties. It is a software engineering piece. It is a cryptographic science, and it has a gaming theory, uh, uh, you know, meshed into it. So you can actually program logic into the ledger. Um, it has signed by cryptogra- cryptography, so that makes it very, very secure. And it has a reward mechanism that can be put into it, so that gamifies people who actually run these ledgers. Uh, you know, it it enables you know you can do asset assignments. It it is so big that you know the problem is. You know, we have been using the Internet of Information so far, where we have figured out how to use data and send it out to you. We've become self-publishers. We can put out content ourselves. We Just think about the Internet without the ability to publish content. Uh, and you and I, every day we publish content. Whenever we like a photograph on or an image on Facebook, that's content. Whenever you post a tweet, that's content. So now imagine the same power given to every human being on Earth to not just put content out, but to be able to move uh, value. The problem with the value is that we have a double spend problem. If I uh, email you a an image as an attachment, I'm actually emailing you a copy. Uh, the original is still with me. And if you didn't get the email for some reason, I'll email it to you again. Um, so that's the double spend problem. In, in the value terms, if I have $10 with me electronically and I send it to you, uh, you know, there has to be a mechanism that says, okay, I don't have the $10 anymore and Mike has the $10. I should not be able to send you the $10 and send Brian the $10 and send right. Peter Co- the $10. Right, you should be able to copy it. Exactly. So the, the double spend problem is what, you know, the blockchain solves. And because of that, if you think about it, prior to the release of the blockchain, there was no 
institutional effort even, not even by central banks, not even by banks, where they had figured out how to move money directly peer-to-peer, and the key word is without intermediary. Right now, uh, and why do we need intermediaries? We need intermediaries because we establish trust. For example, if you go out and you use your Visa card at a merchant you actually do not have a relationship with a merchant. What makes, what cements that relationship is that Visa logo on the machine. You are trusting Visa and the merchant is trusting Visa and hence the trust is established. But Visa is an intermediary. Same thing happens with an ATM. Same thing happens with PayPal. PayPal is the intermediary. When we send money to each other using a bank, the banks are the intermediary. How do we establish trust digitally so that anyone can establish trust with anyone and not get screwed over. And that is what the blockchain really solves. It allows you to do asset movement, value movement, without the double spend, in a decentralized, open, distributed environment where there is no central authority, without intermediaries. And once you get the hang of it, and you know it comes, to, it'll come to you, then you will really understand of what a powerful... Uh, thing that is that we are at the cusp of something so new so new that we have in our humanity never exercised something like this and we are about to open the floodgates so that is me help help go um lean into the aspect of how it works does it keep a a record of each transaction very simple so let's let's take the example of us three so we have myself faisal we have mike and we have brian all of us have this little notebook with us, right? So on the notebook, we uh, we write, you know, Faisal's got $100, Mike has got $100, and Brian has got $100. So we all three are agreeing that we all three have $100 each. Now, when I send to you uh, $10, I will actually say it out loud, Faisal sending to Mike $10. I will write the same thing on my book. Brian will write the same thing on my book and you will write the same thing on my book on your book. So the ledger has now shown an entry where Faisal transferred $10 from Faisal to uh, Brian. Now we do this transaction again and again and again. All these transactions, these logs, they are think of them as individual blocks. Now when and each block is linked and time stamped and cryptographically signed to the previous one so now imagine i say i'm sending $10,000 to mike now that's me trying to fool the system if you will but if you look at brian brian says well you know what fasel only has 90 bucks and i look to mike mike says yep you know fasel you only got 90 bucks so The consensus will say, out of the three ledgers that there are in production, two ledgers will say, Faisal doesn't have that money. And my transaction will not be validated because the consensus decided that, you know, I don't have the money. I'm trying to fool the system. So Mm -hmm. that's how a blockchain really works. So think of each transaction as a block. And when you chain it to the previous transaction, you have a block and a chain. Ah, I like what you did there. What if there are discrepancies? What if there's 100 notebooks out there and 80 of them say that you have $90 and then 20 say you have $10,000? Is that a reality? Absolutely. And this is, uh, you know, uh, the consensus today, and it depends. Uh, So this is a big thing. It depends what type of a blockchain you're using, what type of a me- what type of a consensus mechanism it uses. But typically, we will look at the 51%. The 51% wins. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, you know, Brian, who's been uh, mining and is a miner, 
is exactly doing this thing. He is actually running a node which where the blocks are, you know, the transactions are being looked at and so forth. And there is proof of work required. So people ask me, what's what's a proof of work? And it was very difficult to sort of give them an example. I say, okay, well, uh, you know, let's think of it this way. I'm going to give you a bucket and that bucket is filled with six or maybe 700 dice, right? So you've got a bucket full of dozens and dozens of dice. And I'm going to think of a number, 1,248. I want you to throw dice so that 1,248 comes out. Now imagine if you have 700 dice in a bucket, how many tries would you have to do before you get that number? One, two, four, eight. Millions of times. Mm -hmm. And whoever amongst us three gets that number, one, two, four, eight, gets rewarded bitcoins, gets to record the blockchain, and you know, gets to it gets to lock the blockchain up and we move on. So there's there's there is there is the gaming theory to it. So it's not that you can just come in and sort of game the system. You have to work for it. And the more people come in, the more and more people are competing for the same price. And over time, the hash algorithm gets, you know, it gets more complex. So uh, uh, what that goes to say is you may start out with maybe 20 dice in your bucket and maybe 10 years down the road, you probably have 5,000 dice. So you can imagine the number of possibilities, uh, the number of permutations and combinations you have to do to get that one number right, which is randomly generated and, and, and so forth. So it, it has a lot of gamification elements to it. And But all this is, you know, this is technical science, but the real thing is, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, de-establishes intermediaries. You and I can trade. We can do commerce. Imagine there, if... Do you look at it and say, there, is there one blockchain or is there can be hundreds so, or thousands so of blockchains? Will be, kind of, eventually, eventually, there will be many, many, many versions of the blockchain. I think, for example, the state of Florida could be running a blockchain to maintain its DMV records. The state of Michigan would run a separate blockchain to run its DMV records. Uh, the, U, the government in UK will run a separate uh, blockchain to run their DMV records. And here's the cool part. Someone figured out, hold on. So we have all these disparate blockchains. Well, hence the birth of an interledger protocol. Things that connects all these different ledgers together. Provided there is only one single asset defined on the blockchains, which is the, you know, the identity card or the, or the driver's license. So you can actually have the DMV blockchain of Florida, talk to the DMV blockchain of Michigan, talk to the DMV blockchain of UK. And the protocol that will allow you to do that, IPL, Inter Interledger Protocol. So, so not only have we figured out that there are going to be many, many, many blockchains, perhaps thousands of them, we also have figured out a mechanism to connect these blockchains together so that we could actually do, if the permission is given, uh, we can do trade or do value transfer between different ledgers even. Wow. That's really interesting. So do you think that's a pretty inevitable thing where it's just a more efficient way to store information? You know, the so, DMV yeah, records, so, for so, example. So, so think about it as uh, as this. You know, Europe, uh, the European Union has a blockchain that does asset value and asset movement, or rather, in simple English, does banking, right? And then you have a the GCC countries, the Gulf Cooperation countries, they have a blockchain that does uh, uh, asset value and banking on their blockchain. Now, it goes without saying that the European Union trades with the GCC and GCC trades with the European Union and vice versa. How do you connect the two banking platforms? The Interledger Protocol will do that. It will allow 
asset transfers from the GCC to the EU and vice versa from the EU to the GCC. And as we get, so, you know, uh, like the early 80s, and, you know, Brian could probably talk about this for hours, um, there were disparate email systems. You know, there was Fedonet, Bitnet, CompuServe, GE, Genie, et cetera, et cetera. And they could not send email to each other until some guy decided to write down, you know, so there were, there were separate forests that were absolutely, you know, within their walled gardens in their own little Disneyland, if you will. And then some guy said, you know, this is, this is just BS. I'm going to write a protocol. And it, the protocol was the SMTP, the simple mail transfer protocol. And it united and combined all those disparate systems. So blockchain is no different. The blockchains we're talking with respect to the internet world would be the email server you're running within your own company. And then there'll be a protocol to connect that server with the other servers that Google might be running in their company with Facebook, with, you know, with, with General Electric and IBM and so forth. So we will see nodes and ledgers connecting to other nodes and ledgers. Is, is there any, is, in kind of in light of the initial conversation around security with half the internet crashing this week, is there a concern having all the information distributed on everyone's nodes where it's, it could potentially be a less secure system? Or would you flip that in its head and say it's more secure being distributed? So uh, let me be very honest here. I'm still a student of learning. I am learning as to what the security aspects are. I am led to believe in Brian probably can chime in here and, and, and let us know. But also from a uh, from a viewpoint, it is also very important to know you, got, you can't just put everything on the blockchain. There has to be a reason for you where you feel that the record needs to be public, it needs to be decentralized, it needs to be verified, timestamped, uh, validated, has assets defined on it, and no central authority over it. But on the security aspect, I believe it's pretty secure. But, you know, Brian, uh, you know, he, he, Brian, you want to chime in and, and let us know about the security sure. aspects? Well, Axel, uh, Faisal, that was an incredible explanation and overview. I mean, uh, you know, especially the explanation of, um, you know, proof of work. Uh, there's some complexity to that, different proof of work systems, uh, different ways of group mining. You know, uh, I've been mining for a very long time, haven't stopped. Uh, you know, the one thing I would add is not only are there more dice thrown into the bucket, there's less uh, money being paid out to be the winner. Uh, and that was the halving that we just had recently. Uh, it It's made a lot of people drop out of mining, uh, especially Bitcoin, uh, but, you know, other uh, other uh, currencies. So how, like this. how many were there before before the half came out? And was what's the number now? Uh, how many Bitcoins were you getting? Yeah. Uh, I was 25 and now it's uh, half that. So, um, you know, you're, you're now getting to the point where the ones that are winning in mining, and this is a problem with Bitcoin. It's a problem I've always had with Bitcoin. You know, it's called the 51% control, right? So not only, uh, as you said, the, you know, the consensus is based upon, uh, you know, a, a, a plural, plural, the, you know, a majority maybe uh, of, uh, of miners. It comes down to also who's in control of all those miners. At one time, it was thought that, you know, no, uh, no government, no country, no, gov no, uh, no company uh, or collusion between companies and governments would ever want to spend that much energy, uh, literally energy. Well, if you have the um, Two Rivers Dam and you have 
a tremendous amount of unused electricity, which is uh, what's going on in China right now. Uh, and you may have a situation where you're not paying at all for electricity. And you have factories that are building thousands and thousands of chips specifically for mining. Very rapidly, you could see what, what will develop. And that's what's developed. Most of Bitcoin mining has been moved to areas where electricity is either free or cheap. And some argue that it's not free. You know, we can debate that. I'm pretty much sure it's darn near close to free. Brian, would you go down the line of saying that it's it's less secure uh, with the 51% policy, I, I, I guess you call it for lack of a better word, than if you had a centralized repository of information? I mean, the idea that, 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 that classified or important information goes on the blockchain, you know, I'm looking at the IT manager in central Florida that's managing a DMV records and he puts on information that shouldn't be distributed. And then someone gets in there and they can see on everyone's ledger, the history of, you know, all these records could, you know, could we be facing just a, uh, a heavy concern for security as we, as we dive into blockchain and more well uh, infrastructural ways? Mike, it's, it's really a slice of time, right? Um, at some point we're going to have quantum computing uh, available for almost anybody. Today, fortunately, it's it's limited to maybe 30 to 60 uh, companies, governments that we know of. There may be more. Uh, and quantum computing would potentially invalidate everything we humans do as far as cryptographic and uh, uh, any sort of uh, tight systems of control. Um, one must expect that this is going to happen. Uh, and at that moment, we'll be at that to year 2000 Y2K crisis uh, to a level nobody's ever imagined. That means all secrets will now be revealed. That's really what it means. Uh, quantum computing will definitely do that. There's no question. There, There is no password that's long enough. There is no cryptology that's long enough. So one would then argue then you build the system on quantum computing and that's the ultimate. But like everything – there's going to be final, final pronouncements that this is going to be the end all and be all. Nobody will ever beat it. And that's going to be looking just as ridiculous as, you know, some of the early cipher systems that we uh, have seen used in, uh, in the past. So then there's only one thing left, and that's reasonable security within a short epoch of time. Don't expect it to be, you know, uh, forever, whatever that means. Uh, maybe not for a lifetime, the way Moore's Law has been working. Um, does what I said about the ability for one region, if you will, I don't want to say a country or, uh, or a particular company, let's just say a region of the world that happens to have cheaper, low cost hydroelectric energies really where it's, or, or very low temperatures where you have in Nordic regions and, uh, geothermal energy. You know, um, am I worried about that? Not at all. And uh, not even at all for Bitcoin. I think there's way too much investment to keep Bitcoin moving because there's game theory around this. And that is, why are you taking over all of this control of Bitcoin? Well, you want to get more income. I mean, that's it. You know, well, some would argue well, you want to get control of it. Okay, maybe. But how are you going to pay for that at some point? Well, you're trying to pay for it by the virtue of mining Bitcoin, right? It, it, unless somebody is going to have a tremendous amount of budget just to want to throw a monkey wrench into Bitcoin, which is plausible in some theories. I think it's highly unlikely. And 
then you go back to the reality of the game theory that controls this particular idea of Bitcoin and then by the extrapolation is blockchain. Uh, and I think it's a valid system. It's going to be a valid system for quite a long period of time. What about other blockchains? Well, my problem when you start centralizing the blockchain within one company, then all you really has all you really have is a database. It's a database with a fancy term around it. It's a database. It's controlled by one company, and there is a potential because there's only one proof of work involved or one series of computers or one centralized organization. There is the ability for that data to be corrupted and infiltrated. Uh, actually to a much higher level. Why? Uh, we, we could just basically, because it's one company doing their own blockchain, right? If I get to understand how that company is working their blockchain, right? And it's not too difficult. Then I can get maybe one quarter of a percent of the Bitcoin miners to get in there, mine their blockchain, figure it out and essentially take it over. Uh, and And what I mean by that is, Obviously, they're going to try to turn off the networks and it will be done. But what it also means is ex post facto, everything that did come through that blockchain is now uh, potentially going to be uh, a product of being decoded and brute force uh, manipulated. So, so does, it, does, does, it, does it make sense to say that there will be these independent organizations like the, you know, the, the Miami, Florida police department that organizes, that uses blockchain? Because as, yeah. as Faisal was describing, it kind of makes more so, sense to have a distributed system where so, many, so let many me, people. Let me, let me again say something. You know, these problems, uh, Charlie Cooper, who's the managing director for R3, yeah. a consortium uh, for blockchain, you know, he said, he said something that is amazing. He said people always overestimate what technology can do in two years, but underestimate what it can do in 10 years, you know? <laughs> exactly. Uh, so I, I think uh, we know this is version 1.0. We know that, you know, for example, the blockchain cannot do more than seven or eight transactions per second. Visa does probably more. They do about maybe 10,000 or 20,000 transactions per second. It cannot scale well, at, at blah, burst, blah, blah. Yeah, burst, it's even higher, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, so forth. But I think, um, so there, so, and, and you know, these, these variants of blockchains that have come out, uh, so they have things, something called, you know, permission and permissionless ledgers. So you, only certain amount of people or uh, let's say sponsors or members would actually be allowed to write into the ledger. The others would just be witnesses, so to speak. Um, certain blockchains will run, will be semi-public or semi-private or totally private. It, even if they are private, it, it, it the, the, the thing that where I sort of, you know, uh, would like to clarify the, about the central databases, there would be no central database. The whole thing about the central database is, and from what I've read so far, and, and, I've, and I've talked to a lot of people about this thing, is a central database means in an authority, a authority, that has yeah. the ability to lock you out, edit, delete, and everyone copies from that master node. There is no master node in a, let's say, if we talk about this banking blockchain in, in Europe, you know, so there wouldn't be one master node. Everyone would have it and all transactions would get broadcasted. And I think we'll see a lot, a lot, many different variants of the blockchain come in, you know, some would be good for public, some would be good for semi-public and private use, etc. Um, but, you know, it, 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 it remains to be seen. Another thing that was very interesting that came out is um, 
a person uh, who I met in Dubai recently, and you know they've been investing in blockchain companies, and he's a he's a mathematician by 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 education, and he asked me, he says, "Do you know how many Java developers there are in the world?" I said, uh, "I have no clue. Uh, I'd say millions." He says, "Yeah, well, you you're off by a, by a factor of ten, but yeah, he says there are about ten million ten million Java developers in the world." He says, "Do you know how many blockchain developers there are in the world?" <laughs> oh, five thousand. You know, pretty damn close. Seven thousand. Yeah. yeah, that's it. Between I five said and seven thousand. That's it. It's under ten thousand. And he says, go back circa nineteen ninety two or nineteen ninety three and ask how many HTML. You know, CSS. Well, CSS wasn't invented back then. But it how many HTML? There, yeah. How many HTML Java developers in the world? And that number would have been the same. And ask that t- question today, and you know, you have millions. So that's the kind of potential that the blockchain has. But I think the most important thing that we are missing and we have yet to talk about it is what the blockchain provides you is a ability to program assets. You know, uh, it, it's exactly. very important that what we understand that it provides you with this native ability to program assets. When you are able to program an asset, uh, programmable money, you can move that asset, you know, and, and, and to give you an idea of what a programmable asset would be, uh, money, bonds, stock certificates, ownership, licenses, titles, identification, you know, and, and Dave Birch has written amazing stuff on this thing. Yeah. Billing record, transaction history, etc. So once you are able to program an asset, you have the ability to track an asset. And here's the best part. When you have a programmable asset, and you add logic to it, which is if then else, you have smart contracts. So think of it as within the blockchain, you could say, uh, you know, you, uh, if uh, Mike and Faisal have a bet that the Dow Jones will open, I say it's going to open 500 points plus, you say it's going to open 500 points negative and we are betting $100. We can actually program this into the blockchain. Your $100 is in the blockchain. My $100 is in the blockchain. We have the if-then-else statement. If over 500, you know, Mike to transfer to Fessel. If under 500, Fessel to transfer to Mike. And then we have an oracle. The oracle being the Dow Jones Industrial Average. And we will point it at some source, which will basically find out what the price of the Dow Jones is when it opens up. Based on that, the contract logic, logic will execute. And the bet, which was either you will pay me money or I will pay you money, will, will be executed. So we have the ability to to now not not just do asset movement, which is which is fine, you know. I mean, asset movements are great, but we can do contractual movements. So we can have smart contracts, and you know, people will ask, well, why do we really need smart contracts? What's the what's the inherent difference between a smart contract and the contracts we're already doing? We're pretty good with it, but a traditional contract, even if you're super super good. It takes one to three days to set up. Uh, smart contracts are basically code, programming code, if then else, logic, asset values, uh, programming minutes. Um, the the settlement of the of the financial benefits of a contract, if I have to pay you or you have to pay me, can take is manual. Uh, 
uh, it has to be looked into and we have to verify things and only then the bills will be paid in a smart contract it's automatic because asset movement is built into the blockchain uh, no uh, uh, in certain cases escrow would be necessary in the case of the bet that you and i have we might have to make brian the uh, the, the the person who will be holding on money you know escrow is 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 mostly not necessary within the blockchain uh traditional contracts are very expensive hello 750 dollars an hour lawyer you know uh, exactly. a, a programmer is what 30 dollars an hour 50 dollars an hour fraction of the cost physical presence wet signatures uh in the blockchain world digital signatures and most of the time we require a lot of lawyers in the smart contract world it's logic Lawyers may be necessary, uh, but mostly logic. So hmm. I think, uh, you know, and, and uh, more of a, uh, more uh, to say one more thing, we can have nested contracts, just like in, we can have if-then-else statements, under-if-then-else statements, under-if-then-else statements. We can have nested smart contracts. So a, a, a contract would be order 10,000 burgers from... Burger King, that's a smart contract, right? And Burger King would have a contract that says, if I get an order for 10,000 burgers, order 10,000 mayonnaise from this supplier of mine. And that mayonnaise supplier guy could have an order saying, if a $10,000 order came in from Burger King, go and order foil packets from this foil guy and so forth. So you see where we have nested contracts, one under the other. And if the the very center contract fails, it uh, its negative outcome is applied to the other contract, is applied to the other contract, and so forth. So you don't have to do all this tracking, if you will. The contract is tracking it for you. You know, and uh, Faisal, that is a brilliant uh, way to display that. That is definitely one of the futures I see for it. And I would even go further, uh, and I've been dealing with some stealth companies that are doing a lot of machine learning and artificial intelligence. And uh, one of these um, groups are working on an AI-based uh, smart contract, uh, exactly as you uh, displayed, but in, in uh, machine learning and AI uh, uh, terminology, uh, it is going to be self-learning and self-perpetuating, building more contracts based on uh, a number of different uh, signaling and, and marking uh, uh, statements. So the future is is really phenomenal. And the only thing I say along all of this is we always have to remember, especially what happened on Friday, that the more we build these things, the more we have to build responsibility into them. And um, the algorithms are solid. There's a lot to be said about how, you know, the blockchain concept has, you know, gestated. But, you know, I think we should be forming uh, a, a at least a thought group. Uh, I, I don't really like regulation around it because you know regulators are always a moving target and are going after what happened, not what's got coming. Uh, a thought group about how this is going to perpetuate itself, uh, and and I think the nesting is a good example of just how powerful, but just how the unintended circumstances could wind up happening if uh, if somebody found a way to throw a monkey wrench in it. Because ultimately, I, I, I see inventory management systems built around this. I mean, phenomenally yeah. and, powerful. But again, Brian, you know, I think it's very important that when we get a little ahead of ourselves, you know, like like Charlie Cooper said, we get, we always overestimate. Exactly. It, it's always good to, you know, just 
yank on the uh, on that chain and and bring us to reality and the reality mm-hmm. is that less this technology the entire blockchain if you will is only 8 years old right it really came into the world of uh, let's say the attention of the world 2014 when people stopped yeah. stopped thinking about the bitcoin and started thinking about the blockchain. Um, you know, there's a there's a, a, a diagram that Alex Tapscott showed at one of the Google Talks, and he said, you know, if we look at what are some of the technological revolutions today, not tomorrow, today, mobility, drones, artificial intelligence, big data, Internet of Things, social web, machine learning, and cloud. These represent the core of what is happening in cutting-edge technology out there today. Blockchain is bigger than all of these combined together. Oh, yeah. This is not his opinion. He's basing it on hundreds and hundreds of interviews they've done. In fact, one of the things that you read in the book is they've listed Every single person they've actually interviewed, you know, he, they were so open about it. And you can't help but think that spending two, three years talking to people and getting the insight, this is a, um, and, and, and pun intended and no pun intended at the same time, this is a consensus from the experts who are <laughs> at the forefront of this technology, you know. So, I, I and, and you know, we haven't even talked about Ethereum and DAO. I, I think yeah. we, will, we will do that for a separate show because it, the use... That might be too much. Yeah, we got to definitely no, break no, no, no. that down. No, no, no. no. Yeah, so the use cases of what, what can be done within a blockchain? Some applications, you know, uh, that are extremely, extremely important that, you know, people say, well, you know, fine. So we have this blockchain. We can do asset transfers. Give me some real world examples that really do make a difference there that really will uh, see the light of the day. Not not just uh, not just BS, you know, yeah, so, let me let me. Let me ask you, like, we're kind of going along the lines. Where does this first uh, pick up big traction? You know, what industries? Because I, I fully agree that this will come in and completely change how the banking industry works, much of the governance system. Um, you know, that that makes very strong conceptual sense. However, those are massive, ancient architectures. I think the first, the first proof that I have seen uh, personally is cross-border payments. Ripple is a fantastic example of a variant of blockchain technology. R3 is an example. Visa just did a trial. Uh, there was a blockchain trial on moving money from uh, UAE to India. There are 12 banks that just did a trial. Westpac in, in New Zealand and Australia. So money. Money is one. Uh, second, so it's, but uh, just uh, before you go to the next one, so are banks trialing this? I mean, isn't the whole yeah. point to disrupt banks and go around banks? No, Why would you no, need- I, I think that's a misnomer. And I think that's yeah. th- that's been, uh, uh, you know, I was speaking to a very senior uh, member of the blockchain community within IBM, and he said, you know, the problem that we have is uh, IBM is hiring. And, and, and I was just like, hold on, dude, I'm talking to you about blockchain. Why are you talking to me about hiring? <laughs> and he says, let me tell you, please bear with me. I said, okay. He says, IBM is hiring journalists who are not journalists. I said, why? He says, because the fact of the matter is so many things have been put out of context that, you know, we are having a hard time trying to tell the partners who are very core to us that we're not trying to disrupt them. Banks are not trying to get disrupted by blockchain. I think banks are going to welcome it. Anything that can make money for them, they're going to welcome it. Is the is the banking world or is the world going to go and have zero banks? 
uh, who knows? But that, let's say for it's a safe bet to say not in the next few 10, 20, 30 years. Yeah. I, don't, I don't think so. It's going to happen, right? So banks are embracing it. Anything that can make it more, you know, reliable, robust, more cryptographically strong, etc. They're doing that. Stop. And, and Faisal, uh, banks are a political uh, creation also. I mean, you know, we, we've talked about this uh, in prior shows. Uh, it is all about currency control and, and restriction of cross-border currencies and imbalances and and such. So it would it would really take a whole lot to eliminate that infrastructure. And um, I don't see that happening other than some kind of monumental change around the world. Do you, I mean, do you think that the banks uh, will, will, will kind of eat their own lunch, if you will? I mean, no, I, I think a- uh, I think it's very clear. If you mention Bitcoin, the currency, that is something that's more of a sour you know, point for them. But if you mention blockchain, I think they are very interested. They are very, uh, you know, embracing it with open arms. They're trying to learn about it. The possibilities, uh, some of the, see, again, think of, forget the technology. Think about the behavior. Brian, you meet someone randomly from Kigali, right? How do you trust him? Well, blockchain technology allows you to establish trust with him without an intermediary. That's the whole thing, without an intermediary. So likewise, if there are 50,000 banks in the world, how does a bank in Dhaka, Bangladesh do business with a bank in, let's say, you know, Nairobi, Kenya, who's never done business without an intermediary? That kind of ledger bookkeeping and, and trade is, we've never done it before. Hmm, that's really interesting. So I, I'd imagine soon enough, any idea when we could start paying people uh, for work in other countries through blockchain? I, and, and would blockchain be facilitating? I, I, I think I think it, we we are looking at, uh, at 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 both ends. We are we are seeing people who are doing a top down approach. They say, let's go down to the central banks, let's go to the big banks, and let's get them. And then we are seeing a lot of movement of people saying, let's go to the grassroots level. Let's let's do mass payouts. Let's help. Uh, freelancers and enable you know trade and so forth and they will probably meet somewhere in the middle uh, and how that fabric looks like i don't know but money is one use case that i'm seeing a lot the other two use cases that are very very strong uh, is stock ownership whether whether it's a title uh, you know some sort of an ownership uh, and starting with the stock exchanges and and some very specific stock movement stock title and ownership movement and the third which is extremely important now for something that has not changed for nearly 90 plus years and that is identity the template yeah. that we use today is oh was first developed in 1921 i i read somewhere and i have to go back and check my sources but somewhere around that part it hasn't changed in in 1921 the kyc process was yes name address say social security date of birth social security i don't think so was invented back then but you know um date of birth mother's name father's name etc and so forth 2016 we asked the same questions today we haven't we haven't moved on you know, and so some think, parts of the world, it was so hard because people had the, the, the same, literally the same names in the family, and and, uh, and yeah, and uh, and uh, one uh, area that is really cool, and Brian, I don't know if you recall, you actually went to Barclay Stars and met up with this company that was trying to revolutionize how the bill of lading, uh, how the container movement is 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 with you know, all these documents and papers, and they were trying to put all the bill of lading into the blockchain. you recall? 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the, the idea is sorry, Mike, Mike went there actually. Please. Yeah, Mike did that. Yeah, yeah. Mike went. Yeah. But yeah, oh but yeah, the, yeah, that was a yeah, the tech stars uh, out of Barclays Bank stars. in New York City. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, interviewed all the companies out there. Really fascinating. Yeah, the the idea is how soon would any of these uh, use cases impact the average person? I mean, that's that's where everybody sorts of sort of yeah, that's a very important out. point, and I think it'll yeah. it'll be some time. Yeah, exactly. It's not like you know, it, it, some people have said, well, it's going to impact everybody in the next five years or next two years, next one year. And I think that's probably the wrong way to approach it. I think all of this is going to be really deep back end. Banking is already moving. In the, uh, there's not a major, uh, there's not a large bank in the world that doesn't have a blockchain uh, connection in some way. Either they're part of a group or they're doing it internally uh, and they're some of them are working very aggressively to completely change everything. But Mike, I got to ask you, this is a lot of stuff that's sort of outside what you do on a regular basis. What is some of your insights? Cause I really want to see how it looks to you. I mean, as far as I think the, the impact it'll have long-term is most exciting. It's always fun to talk about what's right in front of us, right? If we can change the way remittances and cross borders are handled, if there is a new way that banks can implement something. But I think Faisal hit it on the head with the next one to two years probably won't be quite what we expect and hope, but 10 years out, it'll look dramatically different. I think that the whole, you know, what is it? A hundred trillion dollar market of Wall Street. I think that, you know, representing roughly 25, 30% of our economy. Economy, all of that can disappear. I mean, I, I think, frankly, the requests of the, the stock market to put in futures and shorts and trades and uh, everything else around ETFs, all of that is is just really a, a large blockchain. And if you replace all that and have instantaneous IPOs, right, you just put your company up and then, you know, uh, Starbucks, Home Hero go public in, you know, less than a second, and then everyone can buy and sell immediately on the spot with no fees or, or charges, you, you, you introduced trillions of dollars back into the market. Um, so I think that's extremely exciting long term. And then probably the short term would be how you can pay people in other countries without having them to our developers who live in Argentina have to literally drive to Uruguay because the banking industry, because Argentina uh, currency is so volatile. And so I think, you know, what's stopping us now? I almost want to send them an email and say, hey, can we pay you guys in Bitcoin and use blockchain with that? And the concept around cross borders is, is fascinating. Um, so I, yeah, I think both of those together are really interesting. And then of course, hearing how Faisal's conversations with banks on the inside, kind of their culture, I think that's, that's fascinating. You know, are they totally bullish on it and can't wait to implement things? Or are they looking at it like, you know, uh, what's the, what's the book? Um, Disruption. Uh, who, who said, well, you, there's a great book, Elef who says elephants can't dance by yeah. Louis Kirchner on the IBM's, uh, <laughs> epic, um, way of, uh, uh, kind of the rapid loss of $16 billion and how he came in and changed the entire industry. I, I wonder if that's going to happen across banks. And as we go forward, I think it's, you know, it's, it's possible they may have to decide between how do we invest in the future uh, at the same time of kind of cannibalizing our existing business to some extent. So I got to ask, so from your perspective in real life, in real time, you actually see a use case for being able to move money to people who should be paid. 
right? Yeah. And also, um, I mean, even just to, just to mention them because they're always top of mind and we had them on the show recently, um, with Nineo, um, we brought on, uh, Jack Langworthy, CEO of Nineo and they're building a, I think it was the last episode we had up or one of the last ones. They're building a marketplace in Tanzania for farmers to buy and sell crops. Major, vast majority of the, I think 40 million population in Tanzania works around farms and they have a 40%, 40% of the population struggles with malnutrition. It's not because there's not enough food. It's because the system to buy and sell food is completely broken. It's people driving trucks to individual farms, making an offer. You know, they throw rocks inside the, 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 the barrels of maize. There's not a great system for identifying who these people are, building a credibility into the system, allowing transactions to happen quickly and reliably. I mean, if you were to introduce this concept there and they have internet connectivity, right? They all have smartphones. They're new to it. So they're effectively leapfrogging what we've done in the States and many other parts of the world. But you can, you can instrument a system and Jack is working on this now, uh, to effectively build in that reliable exchange of value. And that, that in itself is their biggest, uh, opportunity. I mean, you're talking about an instantaneous change of 30, 40 million people's lives um, and dramatically changing the course of a country with one application, uh, just that alone. So I think those are some of the really exciting pieces that you may not even think about. You know, everyone leans towards banking and sure, those are huge opportunities, but, you know, buying and selling corn in Tanzania, you know, that's, that's the exciting part because that's, that's changing lives immediately for people who uh, are ready and willing and, and desiring to have that happen. I, I think we could use a cell phone example uh, of how everybody thought that there was going to be copper wire run to everybody in China and India and in the 70s and 80s. And, and here we are. Uh, th- there's no chance that that's going to happen. Everybody has a cell phone. I think as we leapfrog in these parts of the world, especially in, in a case of using blockchain for farming and, and other commodity goods, it, it's going to be extremely powerful and it's going to be more meaningful, actually, just like M-Pesa. Mobile currency is more meaningful in that part of the world than it is in other parts of the world. I think blockchain could be more meaningful for these folks. So it, it, it's got so much possibility. And, um, and it's going to be a phenomenal mention, time. You know, that we are not, uh, that if you connect, there, there are thousands and thousands of people who are not connected financially. They're connected information wise. Imagine if those people come on board because you have. Trillions of yeah, dollars yeah, that, will, yeah, that, totally. that will come on the economy because yeah. right now there are many, many dark patches in the world who are not connected to the financial system. And even the financial yeah. systems are not connected to each other seamlessly. You know, you have to establish trustworthy well, relationships. It, it, if you even look like look at Africa, right? Uh, you can put three United States inside of Africa and still have some extra space. Uh, uh, most of the Western world doesn't realize how large of a country it really is, and I think it's only like one country. It's, continent, continent, my friend. Continent, yeah, con- yeah. Sorry, a continent. I'm saying uh, they think it's one country. It's a it's a continent. So <laughs> so when you. Yeah. So when you look at it, uh, this part of the world is where we're going to see a tremendous amount of uh, development around modern technologies. And like you said, bringing people into the economy. Uh, Once once education education permeates in these regions to a level I think it's going to, and blockchain is going to assist in that. 
uh, you're going to see some of the most creative individuals uh, lighting up uh, the marketplace. Uh, well, not- I think I, I think Faisal said it correctly. It's not. I, w- I would almost argue that it's not education um, being able to permeate those environments, but the 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 receiving end of value. Right? You can learn everything oh, you exactly. want, and you can be a great developer, and you can push code. But if you can't get paid, you know your economy is not going to change. People aren't well, going to learn. People aren't going to. What contribute. I mean, what I mean by the education is because they are developing to the point of getting. Uh, uh, a reliable, uh, fast internet access. There is nowhere near as many people uh, who could be part of a modern economy programming all sorts of uh, a virtual type of uh, you know economic product, if you will. I mean, not selling you know indigenous tribe uh, stuff, but more. You, you look at some of the uh, modern uh, Africans, and they are just begging to learn more. And the, it is an access problem still today. I mean, Facebook is trying to solve some of that with their initiatives and, you know, it's got good and bad sides to it. But once that part is in there, I believe that will start a renaissance on a massive scale, not just in pockets, on a massive scale across the continent. And then the delivery of, uh, of, of financial uh, gain back and forth through all of the different uh, economies that exist in that continent is going to be phenomenal. So I think we're going to see a renaissance and this technology is going to bring that about. I don't know if the world's ready for that because you have uh, you know, a, a, a powerful, powerful workforce that's going to arise uh, from that. Oh, we are ready, sir. We are absolutely ready. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's hard to even overstate it. So we should really do a part two here where we discuss uh, kind of an extension to Faisal's uh, uh, contribution around the smart contracts um, you know, you mentioned uh, Ethereum and DAO, but I want to dive into that as well. So we will do that next week. You know, this is a very interesting topic. Uh, I have to give a shout out to Brett King. And, you know, we were inspired by his five series on the blockchain. And I yeah. think it's very important that, you know, we study it more because this this is the next internet. If you look at the internet layer, <clears throat> And we have two layers on top. Oh, the layer on the left would say, you know, the layer that we are currently experiencing, that's the, that's the, the dub, dub, dub layer, the, the world wide web. And now we have the blockchain layer and you will actually be able to do so, so much more. So I think it's, uh, you know, let, let, let's do a part two and let's talk more about smart contracts and Ethereum and DAO and what it means for us. And not just from a hypothetical point of view, but what's really happening on ground today. Mm hmm. Yeah, let's yeah. inspire some people to build it. Awesome, guys. This has been great. Gentlemen, Wonderful. speak to you next week. Have a good... With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a world. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner.